Have you ever had one of those things that like just drives you crazy all week and it's because you can't like, um, there's just something you're trying to remember it and it's like right there and you can feel it kind of in cloud form, but you can't get it like, well, all, 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 none of you, none of you, thank you. Okay. Yeah. So this week I knew that there were like three kind of storylines in that intro video and all week, I'm like, let's see, there's, there's the, the guy that lost his job looking for the job, and then there's the lady that can't, not getting pregnant, and I'm like, what is the third? What is it? And it just, all week, and it's stupid, because all it took was one text to Brad, and he'd have been like, I don't know, and I wouldn't have thought about it all week, but that's what I thought about all week, trying to realize I forgot the sick girl, so there was that. <laughs> Did that come off as cold and callous? That's not... I trust you all know my heart and, um, and are going to give me a, cut me some slack for that. Um, but ra- rarely, rarely does life go as planned. Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, plans are good, um, but, and everybody should plan. I don't, I don't want to talk against planning. But the reality is that reality trumps plans every time. It doesn't matter how good your plans are, that once life hits, you've got to like adjust and be going on the fly. And sometimes things don't turn out um, the way that we plan, um, sometimes because of things that we do. Uh, sometimes it's because of things that other people do. Sometimes it's things that nobody did. It's just circumstances um, dictate. But at the end of the day, that truth may mean that some of our dreams um, will not and cannot come true. Um, and some of you have faced this in life in different versions and forms and situations. Um, you know, but that there comes a time that you realize, well, maybe the two of you are not going to be able to live happily ever after. Or you may not ever have a reason to go out and shop for high chairs. Or you may never find a job that fulfills you the way that you've always wanted to be fulfilled. Or you might not get into that school or that prodigal child might never return. And and there's situations that you get in. And the thing is, is that as we see our hopes and our dreams and and plans um, sometimes begin to crumble, there's this kind of internal sense of um, panic sometimes. Um, And there's some anger that goes along with that. Because after all, um, if you grew up in church, um, and especially, you know, some churches really put this out there, like after all, isn't isn't, um, God supposed to be on my side? I mean, I, if I played by the rules, I did everything I was supposed to do, I did everything people expected, I did things the right way, I mean, isn't there cause and effect? I mean, haven't we grown up being taught what you sow, you will reap? And I've spent all this time trying to sow the right things, and yet when it comes time for the reaping, the field seems kind of bare. And you did everything right, but maybe you've gotten to a point where there's certain dreams or certain hopes that you had that you realized they're just not going to happen. So today we're going to wrap up this series and we're really going to land on where you have to turn when you get to that point in life where you realize it's not happening and your question is, now what? Where do I go from here? So we, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of David and the story of David is great because for a few reasons, A, um, it's one of the most detailed um, stories that we have in the Bible. It's one of the most detailed, detailed accounts of a person's life. Um, B, it's great because David 
Um, he had so many of these now what moments, many of them of his own making, some of them not. Um, but it's also great because not only do we have the story of David written out in narrative form, but we've also got um, what basically is some of David's journals, if you will, um, in the Psalms of him expressing some of the things that he was thinking and feeling as he was going through a lot of these events and talking about some of the ideas of where he landed within that. And David, he was promised at a young age that he was going to be king, which is a big promise to put on a young man. But crazy King Saul, um, he turned on him and he thought things would be a lot better if David was dead. So David flees into the wilderness and he did what many of us do when it looks like our plans and our dreams um, are shattered. He panicked. And when he got out there, he panicked. And when he panicked, he made one bad decision after another. I mean, he was just not thinking right. And in doing so, in doing so, he learned some valuable lessons from the consequences that he reaped from these bad decisions. And the lesson that he learned there, he carried part of that lesson with him as king. But as he got to king, he made new mistakes. Um, and it's kind of the lesson that he learned when he was king um, in that season of his life um, is a lesson for all of us that I want us to look at today as we wrap up this series. So about 22 years after David's become king, he's in his 50s now, which in that culture and time period, like 50s were you, were, you were old in your 50s. Like teeth were probably gone. <laughs> like you were not, you know, you had the smells of an old person, um, whatever that be, right? And I'm, you know, I used to think 50 was old. Now I don't think 50 is old at all. Like 50 is, 50 is like the new 20, right? Because <laughs> 50, here I come. Um, but, but, yeah, so that gets younger and younger, 50. But David at 50 was an old man. Like, I mean, that, that, that's your start in the, down, the downhill there. And, and David, when he was 50, he had sent his men off to war. And it sets the stage for what is David's most famous failure. Because one night while the men are off the war, he's up on his roof and he's looking out over the city and he spies with his little eye a beautiful woman bathing. And he sends word with one of his servants. He asks, who is that? They say, well, that's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite which Uriah was one of his most loyal soldiers who was currently off at war battling for him. And David's thought was, bring her to me. So Bathsheba comes. They spend a night together, maybe a few nights together. Word gets to David. Bathsheba's pregnant. He's got to cover it all up now. He's got to do something. So he takes things once again into his whole own hands to try and control the outcome, to try and manipulate the circumstances. So he's got to come up with a plan. What do I do? So he brings Uriah home from war. Has some made up conversation he's got to have with him. And then he says, while you're here, you should just go see how your wife's doing. Go spend the night with your wife. Pregnancy covered up. No problem. Next morning, he discovers Uriah slept on the stoop in front of the palace all night. <laughs> David's like, dang it. Why does he got to be a good guy? Let me try this again. So the second night, he gets him drunk because, you know, drunk. <laughs> and so he's like, now, now, go spend the night with your wife. Uriah doesn't. Leaves him in a very awkward position. 
And so now David makes what is the only the most natural decision. He hands Uriah a note to give to the leader of the battle that says, hey, go to the worst spot, get Uriah out front, and then pull back and leave him there to be slaughtered. So Uriah delivers his own death note, and it happens that way. And then David brings Bathsheba in, and he looks kind of like the hero because now here's David, and he's going to raise this child that is not his, who's the child of a man that died fighting for him. And he marries Bathsheba, and it looks as though David managed the outcome. Except what had happened was no secret. In an environment where there are so many servants and so many people around, the walls have ears and the walls talk. And so it was a very poorly kept secret what had happened. And eventually, eventually the prophet comes to David and tells David this story. In this story, there's a person in the story who's really cruel and really selfish. And David gets so mad at the person in the story. The prophet says, David, you are that person. And David breaks. This is, what, this is what set David apart from Saul. Is that David had his faults. And David did things wrong. I mean, wrong on an epic scale. Like, he took a dude's wife and had a dude killed. Like, that's... <laughs> huh. But when David's confronted with it, he admits. And he's broken. And he broke and he allowed the law of God to, to break him. But, but here's the problem with that is that even though David admitted and he allowed the law of God to kind of break him and, and, and he realized what he had done, every sin comes um, basically with a prepackaged consequence. It, it, it's part of why God wants us to stay away from these things because there are prices to be paid for them. And that day, as David began to mourn his sin and, and what he had done, the prophet Nathan says to him, he, he says this, he says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And he describes some of the calamity that he talks about. He says this to David, he says, you did it in secret, that thing that you did that everybody knows about. But I will do this thing, this calamity that I'm going to bring on you. I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. In other words, David, you're the king. You're the leader. You're the one that's out there and the most visible. And so because of what you did, I'm going to bring about a consequence that the entire kingdom knows about. Verse 13, then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And once again, we see David acknowledging his faults, surrendering to God. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Which was probably good news to David. He didn't want to die. But what he didn't say was, I'm taking away the consequence. He said, you did wrong. And you tried to hide it from an entire nation. So the years start going by, no calamity, no calamity. We get about 10 years down the road. And David's faced with the reality that his dreams for his future, and not just his future, but his dreams for the future for his children, is not and cannot come true. 
See, David's oldest son was named Amnon. And Amnon was a, a, a character. He, he was supposed to take the throne after David. But Amnon had this issue. And this issue that Amnon had was he was consumed with lust over one of David's daughters. Which, yes, you're thinking right. If he's one of David's sons and she's one of the daughters, yes, that's what that means. It was his half-sister. And he was consumed with lust over her. And her name was Tamar. And he's obsessed with her. But as you read the story, you kind of get the feeling that she knows who he is, but she's not really aware of him. He's not on her radar screen. And so he does different things to try and make impressions on her and to try and get her to notice him. And finally, after he's done everything he knows to do to get her attention, to no avail, he decides to go to an extreme length. And he decides to fake like he is really, really ill. And so he fakes this illness. Everybody knows word spreads amongst all of his brothers. David hears of his illness and it all seems very serious. So Amnon requests from David, David, can you please have your daughter Tamar make me a special meal and bring it to me? So David's like, yeah, okay. And that's kind of weird. We got other people to make meals, but yeah, sure. She can make you a meal and bring it to you. She shows up with the meal. Amnon sends everybody else away. He sends everybody away. And he lets her know, I'm not sick. And he tries to convince and force her into bed with him. And she resists. Here's what her resistance looks like. She says, no, my brother, which that should be enough said, right? No, my, no, brother, no. She said, no, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Do not do this wicked thing. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. And then this next verse, I mean, this is just gut-wrenching on what it is that these kinds of things do to people. And then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And how many of you experienced that in life, that there's been a thing and you've wanted that thing and as soon as you get it, instant regret, your feelings towards the whole thing change? Well, she's devastated, of course. And not just devastated on like this bad thing happened, but she knows that her life is ruined forever because there are no secrets in the palace. And in this culture, because of what had happened, she knew that now she would never marry. Eventually, word gets back to David what had happened. And David is furious. And I would like to say David was furious, so let's look at what David did. But the truth is, David did nothing. He was mad and did nothing. And the best that we can conclude as to what was going through David's head as to why he did not respond at all to such an evil act in his own household was that at this juncture, David had lost his moral authority. I mean, because after all, after what he did, who was he to tell anybody how to manage their life? So he does nothing. So then at this point in the story, we're introduced to another character, and that's, that's um, David's third son, Absalom. 
And Absalom was second in line for the throne because David's second son had died previously. But Absalom was Tamar's full brother, same mom, same dad. And so he heard what had happened and he took Tamar into his household and he cared for her and he provided for her. But he also, like David, didn't do anything about it to Amnon. But the difference between Absalom and David was that David didn't do anything because he wasn't going to do anything. Absalom was biding his time. He had a plan. So he lets about two years go by when everybody kind of has forgotten about that whole incident. Other things are going on. People have moved on in their life. And Absalom decides, I'm going to throw a large feast. I mean, I'm going to have a party. And so he invites all of his brothers to this feast. And not just his brothers, but he invites his father. He says, dad, would you come be a part of this feast with all of your sons? Well, David responds to him and says, well, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Because, you know, I'm the king. When I show up, it means there's got to be all this security, all this other stuff. It's just going to be a big deal. It would be better. You and your brothers, go knock yourself out. It would just be easier if I wasn't a part. So they say, all right. All the brothers get together. They start having this feast. The food is flowing and the laughs are happening and the wine is being drunk at a very quick pace. And once Amnon gets drunk, Absalom orders his guards to go in and in front of all of his other brothers to slaughter Amnon. And so they do. All the other brothers, they freak out. They take off running. They want to get to safety. Absalom's like, oh man, I've done it now. So he hightails it out of town for his own safety. He flees the city. The Bible's fascinating. You guys should read this stuff. It's awesome. But when David finds out that his oldest son had been murdered by who we would find out later is his favorite son, David once again does nothing. He hears it, he's distressed, he has emotion, does nothing. And life just kind of goes on. So about three years later, David from time to time was sad that he had lost his oldest son and also in the process lost his favorite son. There were times within that three-year period that David wanted to go and visit where Absalom was and see him, but he didn't. So about three years after this whole thing took place, he sends message and invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he wasn't greeted by David. He was greeted by messengers who said, you can return to your home and not fear. But he did not see David. And David refused to see him. And so for the next two years, Absalom tries his best to get a hold of his dad in the same city, but he can't even get people to get a message to David. And so as time goes by, he's getting more angry and angry about this situation. Why would you have even brought me back to Jerusalem if you're not even going to interact with me? I might as well have stayed where I was. What's the point? And so finally he decides, I've got to do something kind of extreme. I've got to get somebody's attention. So he decides to go to the farm of Joab, of one of of David's 
closest men, and he burns the thing to the ground. Joab, knowing that it was Absalom and his men who had done it, he shows up at Absalom's and he's like, Absalom, what in the world are you doing? And Absalom's response is, oh, so you do know I'm here. Nice to see you. Thank you for visiting. Now, I have got to talk to my dad. Will you make that happen? So Absalom, he knows. Like, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't just walk into David and bring this subject up. And so he does what every coward man does when it's time to do something tough. He sends a woman in to talk to David. <laughs> which is what I've learned over time you need to do when things need done, right? So he sends the woman in, and she starts to tell David a story. Now, David should be weary of stories by this point, but he didn't catch on. She starts to tell a story. He becomes emotionally involved with this story, and he gets all upset at one of the guys in the story. And she says, David, that guy is you. And he's like, oh, again. Ah. So he relents. And he agrees to see Absalom. Absalom comes in and the text tells us that David reached out and he touched him. And in his touching, it was kind of a symbolic gesture that meant you are forgiving, forgiven and our relationship is restored. Except it wasn't. Because Absalom got up and he left from that. And as far as we know, that was the last time that David ever called for Absalom. That they didn't have another interaction. And as the time goes where these interactions are not happening, Absalom just becomes more and more hurt. And eventually that hurt turns into anger. And he decides, I'm going to overthrow my father and take the throne. I'm done with him. So here's what he does. And this is pretty brilliant. He sets up a table in the middle of the city. And all of the people who were going to head to David for him to help them out with some kind of dispute or issue that you were having, that they were having, Absalom kind of intercepted them and said, hey, I can help you out. So they'd be like, oh, well, okay, you're here talking to me. Here's what's going on. And Absalom would hear. And he would help them out. And he would help settle whatever case or whatever issue they were having between people. And as word started to get out that Absalom would help people what would, and immediately and what would take David weeks, sometimes months to get around to, the people more and more started to come to Absalom. And the text tells us that the heart of the people began to be won by Absalom as they saw his wisdom and the things that he would do to help them out. So eventually, the hearts of the Jewish people had turned from David and were now with Absalom. And he did this. He sat at a table and dealt with other people's problems for four years. I mean, he was in this for the long haul, this long-range plan to overthrow his father. Finally, after four years, when he secured the hearts and the loyalty of the Jewish people, he puts the plot to overthrow his father into motion. He, here's what the text says. It says, Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, 
Absalom is king in Hebron. Now, he sends all these messengers to basically run out through the city. And when the time's right, they're going to run through the streets yelling, Absalom is king, Absalom is king. Now, that sounds like, that sounds like not really much of a plan, right? <laughs> like, you can't just go running through the streets yelling, I'm king now, I'm king, I'm king, and it happened. But you got to remember, there were no newspapers, there was no evening news. There was no internet that you could catch up on everything that was happening. Basically, people yelling in the streets was as close to a social media network as there was. And so all of these people whose hearts had been won over by this man who just showed so much wisdom in dealing with all these issues and would help people and go out of his way to help fix things. All of a sudden, word was now echoing through the street that he was king. And when they heard that, they didn't have any reason to doubt it. They probably thought, well, maybe David died and now Absalom's king. Maybe David just got old enough that he decided he's done and he stepped off the throne. And now Absalom's king. We don't know. But he had the hearts of the people. And so when they heard this, they rejoiced, even though it had not actually happened. So here we are, 16 years after Bathsheba, and David's world is now upside down. His firstborn has been murdered, and his favorite son, who is now starting a civil war to take his kingdom. Here's, here's how it goes down. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. So David abandons the throne, knowing that if he stayed and there was a fight in the city, that the amount of life that would be lost and the destruction that would be had would be too much. So he leaves. And once again, David finds himself a fugitive. Only this time he's not 20. This time he's 61. And when you're 61, being a fugitive on the run with your favorite son having overthrown you was not the dream. That was not the plan. That was not the way he was supposed to spend these years of his life. It was not what he expected. His dreams were not coming true and they would not come true. And that's where many of us find ourselves at times. This is, this is where sometimes our lives intersect with the story of David. Because in the same way that David was, many of us find ourselves in positions to where things aren't going like we thought. Our plans are not and will not come true. And we're heartbroken and we're disappointed and we're angry and we're afraid and we're frustrated with God and we wonder where he is. We're thinking, he could have kept this from happening. What is he doing? What's the point of even going on? Why try? Look at where we are. Now what? Now what? And we're left with it. 
And when we get to this position is where many times, most of us in this position, we make it even worse because we're so angry and we're so frustrated and we're so hurt that we do things, we start to make decisions, we start to try and make things happen and we end up, we end up hurting ourselves even more. And we create more regret and we make decisions that cause more regret, more debt, and we have more pain relievers, yet there seems to be more pain than ever before. But this isn't the first time David found himself in this situation. And the first time David found himself in this situation, as we saw several weeks ago, he tried to take matters into his own hands and he tried to manipulate the circumstances. But he figured out, I can't do that. I can't make that happen. And this is a lesson that we can take from David. When we're faced with this now what moment, he, here's, here's what happened the second time David got to go through this. Everybody who's a supporter of David's filing out behind him in the city, trying to get out of there before Absalom gets here. It says this, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. This was not a happy moment for anyone. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. David doesn't know where they're going. They're just getting out of there. Zadok, the high priest, was there. And all the Levites, who were the ones in charge of the entire sacramental system, all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, this is really important because as we just read through stories in the Bible, there's things that we can just read and skip over and think it's just a detail that's like, okay, give me a mental picture, but there's meaning behind it. And this one's easy to miss because the Ark of the Covenant to the Israeli people it represented the presence of God. To them, you could not get any closer to God than being in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And if for, for some of the people, it was almost like a good luck charm. If you had the Ark of the Covenant with you in battle, you would win. No doubt about it. So when people saw the Ark of the Covenant leaving the city with David... They viewed it as if the spirit of God himself was with David. And the implications of that, when David kind of paused and looked at what was going on, the implication of people assuming the spirit of God is with David, that was a little too much for him. It was a bit overwhelming for him. And he looked at it and he decided this, this feels kind of manipulative. If people are going with me just because the ark is with me. So then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. Now, all of the people who were with him and were like, David, we're with you. When they saw David give this order and saw that ark headed back to Jerusalem, they probably moaned and were like, what is going on? Because they, as far as they knew, they were following the king and they were following God. And David saying, send the ark back was pretty much the equivalent of David admitting Absalom is right and I'm wrong. God is not with me. But David explains himself and, and listen to this explanation. He says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it, being the ark, and his dwelling place again. So in other words, if God chooses to bring me back, I'll be back. 
But I am not going to take, make the same mistake that I made the first time I was exiled and take matters into my own hands. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, David was saying, God, not my will, but yours. God, every time I do my will, I mess things up. Every time I try to manipulate the circumstances and make it go the way that I think it should go, things get worse. Every time I try to do it my way, I just get in the way. And here's the lesson. Here's a lesson for any of us who are facing that now what moment where we're not even sure if God is still with us and we're tempted to try and do things our own way and to manipulate the circumstances. The lesson is, is that David, did, David lost his world. I mean, it was upside down. But he did not lose his confidence in God. His entire world was taken from him, but he did not waver in his faith that God is in control and what he wants will eventually happen. And so he chose not to abandon God when it appeared to everyone watching and maybe even to David himself that God had abandoned him. And he leaves the city and he leaves the ark. So Absalom shows up. He's going to take the city, take the throne. And he shows up and there's nobody there to fight. So he takes it without a fight, but it was hollow victory because the only way he can truly be the king is if David's dead. So he's setting up shop in Jerusalem and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And in walks another character, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was probably, not for sure, but probably Bathsheba's dad. And he was one of David's most trusted advisors when David was on the throne. But when this happened, he changes sides. And he decides, I'm going to be with Absalom. And he gives Absalom this advice. Absalom, don't stop. If you stop now and you just set up here in Jerusalem and let it go, it's not going to be good. You need to put, chase your father down, pursue him, put an end to this now. Because don't, you can't let him regroup. You can't let him get organized. You can't let him gather more people. He says, Absalom, they left in a hurry. They had no plan. They're tired. There isn't much of a defense. If you want to end this, you need to go do it now. But there was another advisor there as well. And his name was Hushai. And he had actually left the city with David. But David heard that some of his advisors had stayed behind. So he said, Hushai, I need you to go back because I know they're going to give him good advice. And I need you to go back and I need you to counter their advice. And I need you to give him bad advice so that we can make it out of here. So David sent him back to Absalom's side so that he could frustrate the plans of Ahithophel. So Absalom says to Hushai, he says, okay, you've heard what Ahithophel has said. What do you have to say. Here, here was his response. Hushai replies to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. You know your father and his men. They are fighters. And as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs, which none of us have come across a bear robbed of her cubs. But that was something they had experienced in that time. He says, besides, your father is an experienced fighter. 
He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave in some other place. He's like, come on, now's not the time. You're not going to be able to find him. You know how scrappy those guys are. They, are. they are seasoned warriors. In other words, don't rush. He says, Absalom, stay here. Gather the tribes. Gather more people on your side. Come up with a solid plan of what to do. And let's do this right. Let's not rush into this. So Absalom hears this. He thinks this is great advice and he's going to follow that. And when Ahipothel knew, heard this, he, he knew it was the end, that it was the exact wrong thing to do and things were not going to turn out well for Absalom. So Ahithophel, he goes home knowing that there was no way David could be defeated in open combat if he was given time. He goes home and he hangs himself. Isn't this an amazing story? Like, God, there's, yeah, he hangs himself. Now, the time for the fight had finally come. It had been building, building, building. Decided it was time. David does something brilliant. He divides his army, his guys, into three separate units and assigns three different commanders over each unit. And then he gives this instruction as they're getting ready to go out to fight. He says, when you engage the army, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. In other words, he gathers everybody together and he says, I know it's war and I know it's chaotic, but if you can, do not kill Absalom. Now, this battle took place in a forest, which once you're fighting in a forest, it changes everything. Because now in a forest, experience is valued more than a higher number of men. And since David had split his guys up, not only did his guys have experience, but now they had three different commanders out there that his men could turn to, whereas Absalom's men, they just had Absalom. And he was having to try and keep track of everything himself. And so there in the forest, Israel's troops, which were fighting for Absalom, were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. And the battle spread out over the whole countryside. And this next part kind of reminds me of like some Lord of the Rings stuff. <laughs> and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now, Absalom, within all of this fighting, he gets caught up. And Joab shows up. Remember, Joab had his farm burned to the ground earlier in the story. And Joab is not heeding David's plea. Text tells us Joab ran three spears through his chest. He was upset. And he killed him. And when David is told that Absalom is dead, he is devastated. And he immediately goes into deep mourning. In fact, he mourned so much that all of his men were afraid to even celebrate their victory. So Joab kind of goes into David and he says, David, come on, what are you doing, man? What's wrong with you? The men feel that you wish they would have died instead. 
I mean, come on. They just sacrificed. They just gave you back your kingdom. Get out there and celebrate. But it was an extremely hollow victory for David because he had loved his son. And now his son was dead. And so he returns as king, but it was hollow. He had no pleasure, no joy. And nine years later, at the age of 70, David dies. Now, one of the things that makes the account of David so amazing is that none of his flaws and none of his mistakes were hidden from us. They're all put out there. And the thing that is so amazing is in in spite of all those flaws, when things did not go his way, whether it was his fault or not, he did not lose confidence in God. Listen, the, the, the foundation of our faith as Christians, the foundation of our faith is not answered prayers. The foundation of our faith is not things working out happily ever after. The foundation of our faith is not things going our way. In fact, it is always, 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 every single time, it is a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams and the answers to our prayers. As soon as you connect those two things, that's going to be the beginning of the end. But we do that all the time. Our faith and our trust in God is directly connected to how we think God is answering our prayers, how God is being active in our lives, if things are going our way. However, dreams that do not come true and prayers that are not answered, they say nothing about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And they say nothing about the presence of God or the activity of God in our lives. And when we feel forsaken by God, when we feel he has turned his back on us, we feel that way because we have allowed our circumstances to cloud our perspective of who God is and how God works. And we would do well in those moments to join David when he makes the incredible statement that was written during this period of his life when everything is going sideways and it all seems wrong, when he says, I find favor in the Lord's eyes. If I find favor in the Lord's, he will bring me back. He will bring me back. Let him do whatever he seems is good to him. I will not doubt him. I trust in him. In other words, he says, not my will, not my will, not my will, not my will, God's will, even though everything is terrible. God's will. I know how I want things to go, but God, I trust you. You know better. I will not abandon you, God, even when it seems like you have abandoned me. It's how David, in spite of everything that went wrong, was able to, in his journals, write these amazing words. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. For you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So when it comes to the now what moments, the primary thing you've got to do is recognize God is still 
with you. And that you don't have to try and manipulate the circumstances to do what you think needs to be done. We cannot think because the circumstances are bad, God is not with me. And beyond any other thing, if you don't do that, if you don't embolden the the stance and the idea that you have that God is with me and you allow it to go the other way, it's over. Only destruction lies ahead. And so as unsatisfying as this answer may be to end this series, when you get to the moment where all you have left is now what? Now what I do? The answer is lean even harder into God. Easy to say. Not easy to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it is within all of our nature to assume that when things aren't going away that you are no longer with us. God, somewhere along the way in life, we have equated you being with us to some kind of tangible blessing that we can see playing out in our circumstances. Lord, I pray that for those who may find themselves in a situation now where those circumstances are not good and they feel abandoned by you, Lord, I pray that you help to correct this line of thinking. That, God, you bring to remembrance the times where you have come through for us in the past. Lord, for those of us who, who may not be in one of those situations right now, Lord, one of those situations are coming. And I pray that now, in these times where we do not feel abandoned for you, that you help us to have the wisdom to be able to separate our circumstances from our faith in you. Lord, I pray for strength for anybody in one of those moments now. Lord, that they are able to resist the urge to do things their way and to lean more into you, as counterintuitive as it may seem. Lord, I thank you for the scriptures that we have, for the amazing examples we have of you working in people's lives, even when it seems like you are silent and inactive. Lord, let us know, let us have faith that you are working in our lives as well. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out. Have a great, great 4th of July weekend. We will see you in two weeks.